Welcome back to Soul of a Warrior. Today, I'm here with Scott Simmons. Hey, Morgan. Hey, Morgan. Hey. <laughs> so, Scott, I met you several years ago playing kickball in Pensacola. Yes. Yes. Are you from Pensacola? I am not originally from not Pensacola, originally. but I have been here about a decade now. I feel pretty comfortable in saying I'm from Pensacola. Yeah. Yeah, you planted roots and now it's home. Yeah. Um, and it's been good. It's a good, you know, it's a good city. No, but I originally I was from Kansas. I grew up okay. in, in Wichita, Kansas, and then spent some time in Little Rock, Arkansas. Graduated <laughs> high school there. Uh, it was a different experience from Wichita to, to uh, Little Rock. In Little Rock, I went to a private school. And so education was like, all of my peers were very, very smart and very driven. And uh, and that was a, a little bit of a difference from the public school I was at. And then I spent some time in Oklahoma for uh, college, went to Oklahoma State. And then I moved to Orlando to Florida on September 11th, 2001. And uh, I was, wow. right. The whole country shut down and um yeah it was it was very surreal as it was for everybody yeah and you know for me i had a giant u-haul the biggest u-haul truck that we could get and here i am i just graduated college i'm headed off on my own and my dad's coming with me at the time very ironically, um, he had actually been laid off from his job about two months before that. And so for me, it was this one time in my life where I'm like, my parents have always been, you know, there and I could still count on them and support them. But it was that one time where I'm like, no, I really can't stay with them because they're probably going to be moving somewhere else. And my dad and I are driving down to Orlando and for me, it was pretty surreal of everything that was happening, but immediately it was a, um, a financial implication because yes. we started the, this will sound silly, but we started that morning and gas was like a dollar 20. And by the afternoon, it was like three eighty five, four bucks. Um, what? and yeah, everyone just started jacking it up as we were driving and I have this big giant U-Haul and I'd only planned a certain amount of money that I had. And, you know, straight out of college, and so I'm looking for my first job, and I had two different jobs lined up in Orlando. And then as I'm driving there, they were gone. Everybody went on a hiring freeze. Orlando being so tourist-based, I mean, it, it kind of just shut the entire Orlando economy down overnight. Holy crap. Wow. Yeah, hotel occupancy rates at that time went from, like, 95 to like 20. And, yeah. And, and it wasn't, nobody planned for it. And when all of the, you know, flights couldn't come in, well, that's what brings in the majority of tourism for Disney and other, other spots. Um, and I remember walking down I drive, which is in Orlando. It's a very touristy spot. It, a bunch of restaurants, everybody goes there. But it was on a Friday night at like eight o'clock. And I was trying to turn applications in for waiting tables, which is what I did all through college. And I go into this Mexican restaurant at eight o'clock 
I'm not kidding. There were eight total people in the restaurant that included servers, staff, everybody. And I thought to myself, I was like, well, shit, it doesn't matter if they offer me a job or not. Like there's no work, there's nothing to do. And, and you know, I, I, I preface all of that because it was a pretty, for anybody that's just getting out of and, and joining the real workforce, uh, when you're in college and, and all of a sudden you don't have any of that, uh, support that you used to have, it was an immediate transition. And it was also an immediately for me in that situation, a very challenging time. Um, and so I, I did tried to find anything work-wise and what's kind of funny. So my, my degree is actually in marketing. Okay. Uh, it's a business degree with a focus on marketing and you know, I spent like two or three years learning how telemarketers are the bane of existence for marketers. Okay? And the very first job like that I took that I had to, um, was a selling timeshares, uh, doing telemarketing, selling timeshares. And it was, for me, it was just brutal. Uh, I have a lot of social anxiety. I'm, I'm not like jacked up to call people and try to let me talk to you until you say yes this Sunday that maybe you'll think in five years, oh, that one year I went, it was good, but the rest of it will take your 80 grand. Um, also, you can get some free Disney tickets. You know, it, it just wasn't something I really wanted to be doing. And it had a, it had a two week period of, uh, they would pay you hourly for the first two weeks and then it went to 100% commission. <laughs> I was never so glad for that two weeks to be done. I hated it, it was miserable. Um, but it, it, at the time it was pretty, um, I don't know, demoralizing that all of these, I guess, life goals and aspirations that you thought, Hey, life is going to work a certain way. And then completely out of your, not totally out of your hands. Uh, the whole world just says, no, not today. And, uh, we're just going to change everything on you. All the rules that you thought you had, they're gone. No more. Um, here are the new sets. Good luck. And, um, you know, it's rough. It was that time. It was just not a, for me, it wasn't a healthy time. Um, it, you get excited about wanting to do certain things and then not being able to pursue it. Right. I think in a, for a lot of people, um, lots of life has to do with deciding what it is you want to do. And a lot of people never figure out what they really do want to do or what they are passionate about. It's me. And I, yeah, <laughs> it's me. I, with it. um, I, I still have so many different things that I would like to try. I feel like if I picked one of them, it's going to pigeonhole me. Well, that's really not, not the case at this stage of my life. Um, you know, gr growing up, my, my dad, I'm very fortunate to have a, a wonderful, loving family. Uh, my parents are great. They're still married. Um, they just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary last year. And I, I hit the jackpot with my, with my parents and I, I've laughed about this with my dad a few times and I, I felt a little jealous because at eight years old, he was living in Georgia in Atlanta and he saw an airplane for the very first time and it was flying and he knew right then at eight years old, that's what I want to do with my life. And so for him, it was that point on, everything was about how do I get to work with airplanes? 
And to this day, he still works with airplanes. He did it professionally as a career for 40 plus years. But that meant once you realize that it makes a lot of things a lot easier. And I was very jealous that, man, you knew a long time. It, it was easy for you to figure it out. And I, was, I am struggling with it and struggling with it. Yep. And, right. And I think a lot of people, more people are on that spectrum of, I have no idea what I really want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you think you do, and then when you get some real-world experience with it, it's like, no, that, that really doesn't make me happy. Right. Uh, it, I feel limited in this, or I don't have enough decision-making ability, or it's not as rewarding as I would like. Or you... Within or, the career yeah. you, you know, if you get stuck with a bad boss, I, I don't care how great the job is. People leave bad boss. They don't leave a bad job. You know? Um and for me, this the whole uh, experience in Orlando, the um, one of I guess my first actual real real job was as a teacher. And you do, to talk about a bad boss, I, I, I could literally just talk for weeks about <laughs> how horrible the uh, the principal was at this school that I ended up. Uh, teaching out for about five years. And, um, you know, I, I think you had, before this started, you had said that um, we might just talk about my story for a little bit. And there was a, a lot of different parts that affect that and kind of go into it. Um, and working at this, this school in this time period of right when I um, had graduated, um, there were two or three years there that were very, for me, very um, influential in uh, affecting me both physically and mentally Mm -hmm. um, that were a catalyst for a lot of the trauma and challenges that uh, I was trying to deal with in life. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking about it at the time and go, you know, there was like a three-year period where it felt like every four to six months, I had this monumental life-changing thing that happened. And I never really was able to decompress or rationalize or just deal with one before the next one happened. And at, and at the end of it, after this like two and a half or three-year period, I felt emotionally so beat up um, that it it really affected in a somewhat permanent way, how I deal and cope with a lot of um, external stress and anxiety and trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me at that time, one was the moving part. Um, and, and 9-11 happening and not having any jobs and feeling like there was this sense of I have failed in some way. Uh, because... Yes. You know, uh, everyone, my parents have supported me going to college so I could get a good job. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the foundation of all of that. And then immediately I felt like, well, I didn't do anything to, to change the literal world economy, but I got to deal with it now. Um, when all of that happened, I was, I became pretty like um, emotionally dependent on a relationship that yeah. I was having mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. And when I moved there, it, I moved in with this girl I had dated previously uh, when I had been 
in Orlando for uh, what's called the Disney College Program. And we had met then, and, and dating was great. But when I graduated college, I wasn't, I didn't want to walk into a relationship. And there were a few things that had happened when we dated earlier that made me kind of think maybe she isn't the one I'm supposed to be with. But I, I care, I still cared for her. She was amazing. And so when we, when I moved down there, it wasn't as though we were going to be dating. We were just going to be living in the same apartment. Right. Yeah. Um, and then the, the whole world changed and then I become really depressive because I, I can't get a job. I don't have any money. Um, you know, covering rent is becoming a challenge for me. Um, she still wanted to be dating and I just wasn't at the time ready for it. And then she had a third friend that moved in and what it, what ended up happening is that I moved from my room to the couch and that's it. And at that time, like I was just left going, all right, this is when you're supposed to be like getting your start in the real world. And yeah. here you are jobless, sleeping on a couch and you, you feel like crap the whole time. And all I'm doing is drowning that, that depression and sorrows into more and more drinking. Mm -hmm. uh, Cause that's what you did at, at school. You know, yes. you're in college, like, everyone does it. Yeah. Does it right? You, you can pull a three or four day bender. Uh, maybe you get blacked out on a on a Friday night, but hey, you've got the whole weekend to recover. Monday's good, and you're you know twenty three, twenty two. Your body. Wednesday, up. we got Thursday nights. Oh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday brunch turns into Sunday night. Yep, absolutely. All of it. Mm -hmm. You know, you're out drinking until two o'clock in the morning, and you're still at work at six a.m. Yeah, that um, was me. <laughs> I get it. That's how we did it. You know? Uh, I, I lifeguarded for many years and I, you can walk in at seven, you just take a, a dunk, a dunk in the cold pool and you're good to go. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, I try to do that now at my age, no way. And, you know, give me like six beers and it's probably going to be a three day recovery. Yes. Um, but at the time it was, I had all of these things starting to happen and I had become a little dependent on her. Um, I had a job that, sorry, before I got this job teaching, at the school, um, I, I got a job as an aquatics auditor with a company called Ellison Associates. Are you there? Okay, it's re it's recording. No problem. <laughs> Sorry but about that. I don't know what. It's okay. Probably not the best reception. That's okay. It'll happen. Okay. We'll get through it. So when you, okay. So before teaching. Yeah. So before teaching and I'm, I'm still kind of struggling and, and I get this opportunity to work with a, a company called Ellis and Associates. And I had worked with them as a lifeguard um, when I was working at Disney on the college program. But what Ellis and Associates, they, the guy that started is this guy named Jeff Ellis. And he was a lawyer for years and he, he was a, a prosecuting. He would take and stew um, places like the YMCA where a drowning had occurred. He specialized in, in uh, lawsuits involving drownings. Um, and eventually he decides, you know what, this is ridiculous. The number of what I think are preventable things we could do. And so he starts his own company that does a lot of the lifeguard training for Nine, at this point, 90% of your really big industry 
aquatic things. Lot, very um, data oriented, knows exactly what he's doing. And it was a really, it was a good job. I felt like um, as an aquatics auditor, you, it's a fun job. You go to the different facilities that uh, work and have paid for EA certification. And the first thing that you would do is you'd spend about 30 minutes and you'd try to, to videotape lifeguards while they're on stand. But you don't want them to know you're there uh, because as soon as they know you're there, everybody's going to know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is in 2001, 2002. And so you don't have little cell phone cameras. I've got this, like, you know, small little Nikon camera that you're going around trying to videotape. And so it was kind of interesting and fun doing that. But to get without getting too wrapped up into that, part of that uh, job was driving from one place to the next. And you, you might drive upwards of 150 to 200 miles a day going from, at the time I went from South Miami all the way up to North Michigan. Wow. Um, but before that, that job gets offered to me and before I can start it in, in April of 2002, uh, my grandfather passed away. And this was the first, like in my, in my life, it was really kind of the first death that I had experienced. I had and I remember, you know, as a, as a teenager thinking about it, that no one I know has ever nearly died. Um, there was one, like, friend of the family when I was four or five, and that was it. And so, you know, my grandfather dies, and he lived in Oklahoma, and I went to school at Oklahoma State. And so I, I fly back. I was pretty emotional about it, and one of the pallbearers. And I decide after that funeral's over, I'm going to stay an extra few days, and I'm going to go to, to Stillwater. Uh, and, and hang out with some of my college guys. Um, and unfortunately, when we went out one night, uh, I got severely intoxicated and got pulled over for a DUI. And it was, you know, DUIs are never good for anyone. Uh, for me, there were several different factors that like were compounding on my, um, emotionally for me. And it was like, you know what, I wasn't, still feeling great about everything that had happened when I first moved to Orlando. I just kind of gotten into it. Maybe I have this job. Maybe I don't. Um, I wasn't really able to process the death of my grandfather um, before all of a sudden I have this situation I have to deal with. And here I'm in, I'm in Oklahoma. I had borrowed my parents' car. The car's impounded. <laughs> I have a flight out that flies out of Texas. So I have to get back to Texas to get back to Florida. And I'm trying to figure all of it out and I'm embarrassed and I'm ashamed about it. And so I don't, I don't tell my parents what have happened. Um, I don't remember exactly what I told, said to them, but I just said, I'm staying here in Stillwater a few extra days. So I, all of that, um, and then my license gets taken. And this job, this first like job I have, and I'm, I'm actually proud of the work that we, what you do as an auditor. Um, I don't have a license. Uh, and I'm thinking, well, here I've been offered a job. It's a lifeline and I have severely messed up and now I'm going to have to not have that job. Um, at, I think at the end of the day, I end up going into the Florida license office and all of the paperwork from, uh, or, from Oklahoma hadn't really gone through yet. And so I was able to actually get my Florida license. 
um, and keep that. And then eventually was able to get my DUI on a, a little bit of a deferred sentence. And then I was put on parole and, and eventually I was able to have that completely uh, taken off my record. Oh man, uh, that's like so a freaking. Yeah, it was just life changing. Yeah. Um, and all of that was compressed within like a nine month window. Um, so anyway, then I do get this job as a as a teacher. <laughs> uh, it's a, at a charter school in Orlando. It's the second year that they've been open, and I went and I apply for this position as a, an art teacher. I had a, a minor in studio art and I thought I could do really well with it. When I get there and she sees my resume, she sees the word auditor, doesn't really read that it's an aquatics auditor or what was part of that job and says, so I see you're an auditor, you, you're good at math, right? <laughs> I have, what I have is an algebra position open. <laughs> I said, absolutely, I'm, a, I, I'm excellent at math. Uh, you know, I took calculus. <laughs> <and absolutely, laughs> I love it. I, I've always had a <laughs> I had zero teaching experience. Really, I hadn't taken a math class and statistics like two years before. And, but I, I remember I really enjoyed math when I was younger. And so I thought, you know what? I, I'm just going to read up one or two chapters ahead every week that we're teaching. And I'll get it figured out. It'll be a paycheck and it'll pay rent. Absolutely. And at least get me something that's I could think of as stability. So um, I, I get that, and um, and I start that job. I want to say within a week or two. Now, <laughs> by this time, the the girl that I had been rooming with, um, she had purchased an actual condo and moved into it, and we were having a lot of issues at the time. I just didn't, I needed a place to stay and, and she, for me, was the emotional support yeah, I through get that. my grandfather dying, this DUI, all of these things. And I just, every time the thought of, of her leaving entered, it just broke me down. Um, unfortunately, it really wasn't a, a healthy relationship, but at the time there was something that for me that did happen that I, I kept with me in the back of my mind for, for quite a long time um, that, that kind of ties into some of the um, drinking and, and uh, addiction issues that I had. Um, at, so at that time, part of this DUI situation and get out on parole for it, I have to take um, a, a test that will help determine if I am predicted towards uh, being an alcoholic or not. And you, you had to take this test in order to get um, all of the requirements checked off through probation. And if you failed this, if you, I said if you failed this, if, you, if it came back and you were recommended that you are more predisposed, then you had to take like 12 hours of group counseling or, or some sort of addiction therapy, right? So we go through this and she's asking me all these questions. And at the time I, I remember thinking, I am so confident in myself that I am not an alcoholic. I do not have a drinking problem. I don't. Um, I just, I drank a lot when I was in college, but I'm responsible. 
Uh, like that's what in my mind I'm thinking, right? Right. Um, one of the, at that time, so one of those questions was, have you ever blacked out from drinking? And I was like, well, of course I have. Like, have you been of in course. college? That's, Every that's college blacks out from drinking once or twice a semester, if not a few times a week, right? Like 100%. That, 100%, right. So at the end of this, I get recommended for counseling. And it turns out it's because of I failed that question. If you black out at all from drinking, that is a very high indicator that you have a, have an issue. And I remember just being at the time a little incensed that I did not pass this this test. It didn't register to me go, to go, hey, dude, you have an issue. You should deal with this issue. It was just like, no, they're wrong. <laughs> There's nothing wrong yeah, with me. That's not, I'm fine. I can function. Right. Okay. So that, but that stuck with me. That was one thing that, that did stick with me because there were definitely times after that in my life where I did black out and it was always like, Oh, Oh, there's that check Mark again. Yep. There's that check Mark for a problem. Yep. It's that inter in the back of your mind. Like, yeah, stayed there. Um, mm -hmm. it was, and I would also think, Hey, not everybody blacks out. And it wasn't until way later in life that I really did realize there are a lot of people that drink and they never black out ever ever in their whole life. Um, it, but at the time it, it, it just was one of those things that I thought was, well, of course everybody does that it, it stayed there. And then a second thing happened, uh, in doing some of this therapy and it was weird. It was these big group sessions, kind of like it, it's very similar to AA, but everyone would just kind of come in and, and tell their story of what was going on at that time while they were there. And, I remember going through through the therapy and it was interesting to hear everybody else's stories. And I learned a lot more about the recognizable issues of specifically for alcoholism. Mm -hmm. And part of that, yo, I can beat alcoholism. I got it. I can beat it. Like, here's what I'm going to do uh, so that I'm no longer an alcoholic. Um, I'm only going to, you know, drink this amount. Or I'm only going to drink this amount, uh, on certain nights or what really at that time was going through my mind at that stage in my life. Wasn't that I had a drinking problem. It was that I had a drinking and driving problem. And so what I need to do is just to make sure I'm not going to drive anywhere if I have been drinking. That's really because I got the DUI, like for whatever reason, that's what I internally, I was like, that's the problem you need to address. And, and Morgan, I remember this very specific, this one night, this girl that I'm dating, she was also a teacher and we had been living in her new place for maybe five or six weeks. And it was still kind of lots of uh, emotional challenges and not really great, but I go out with some friends for the very first time that I have really had any drinks um, since my DUI uh, at that time, like five or six months before. And I go out with a group. We go at like six. And before we go, I make sure that she's the one that's going to pick me up. 
And then I go and I, I only have like, I don't know, five or six drinks. I don't, I don't get wasted. I don't get super inebriated. I'm very in that good buzzed stage. He comes to pick me up at like 6.30 and I, and I go out and um, I have a dr- I bring a drink with me, but it's my drink. And she gets really upset that I didn't have a drink for her. That I that hey, I'm picking you up. Like you you weren't thinking about me at all. All you were thinking about is you drinking. And we got into this really big argument and it really um, I mean it wasn't a great relationship at the time, but it, it really stuck with me in this mentality of thinking, Okay, dude, you uh, you didn't drive, you didn't drink to upset to excess. Uh, you weren't out late drinking. You didn't have too much, and you you made all these plans so that the night would go well and there wouldn't be any bad ramifications from you drinking. And yet, at the end of the night, we got in this big, huge ass fight. And I just remember thinking it it stuck with me there for a long time that um you can plan and make all of these other things, but at the really at the end of the day. You're drinking, it just creates additional problems. Um, and it, it just lingered there for, for a long time. You know, um, you know, for me at, at that time, there were, again, all, all of those things kind of happened. And then this job as a teacher, if you've never taught, I got thrown straight to the lions. <laughs> um, the, the school that I worked at, I, the only really good thing that came from it were the coworkers that I had. I'm still good friends with several of them. Um, at the end of its heyday, when it finally got shut down and closed, uh, Orlando Sentinel wrote a, a weeks long piece about the woman that was in charge of it. Um, she did so many scandalous things, but basically at the end of it stole like $850,000. She made more her last two years at this charter school of like 150 kids than the superintendent of the orange county system and it i had worked with some questionable bosses before this woman was just super unethical really didn't care about the kids in any way shape or form was very very uh punitive towards people and uh it wasn't a horrible experience in that I learned how to be a good teacher and I met some fabulous people and good kids, but it was super stressful and, and not in the way that you really wanted things to be. Um, but for my life at the time, it was stability. And I, during that period, I was, I started to be a lot more conscious of my drinking and, and not trying to drink to excess and not planning like, hey, Friday, I can go out and just get shit-faced. It was more like, you really don't wanna go out and get shit-faced, dude, here's what you really wanna do. Mm-hmm. And um, I was able to change that uh, for my drinking patterns for a good four or five years. Uh, and then I joined, I joined the Peace Corps. And it was an amazing, amazing experience. I highly recommend the Peace Corps to anyone who is listening. If this is something you have ever thought about doing, do it. It is the hardest job you will ever love. 
Um, anything about it can be a, a challenge, but it's just an amazing experience. You meet fantastic, very capable people. You work with some of the most talented people in the entire country and world. Um, very focused on, on doing good things. You always feel worthwhile and that like, oh, there's, there's a reason and purpose behind what I'm doing. Um, for me, it was just awesome. And it was the first thing where I knew I wanted to leave this school system where I was kind of stuck. And with, I really could talk for hours about working at, at this school. Some of the stories are just mind blowing. Um, but at the end of it, I was able to, uh, I was able to leave on as best of the terms as possible and still be financially paid what I was owed and start uh, volunteering in the Peace Corps almost immediately after. So that transitioned really well. And, and for those that don't know, in the Peace Corps, you, you spend two years overseas um, volunteering and working with whatever industry the host country has asked for help. Um, so for me, I ended up spending two years in, in Kazakhstan and working with some of the most amazing people, uh, doing grant writing, working with um, child anti-child labor campaigns, teaching English, small business development, um, community assistance and development, and, and really understanding more about organizations and how to start and create and lead small businesses. That's awesome. Uh, it was fantastic, Morgan. Really amazing. Um, and, and for my life, this all there were several things that fortunately worked out for me. Uh, we left in August of 2007, like the month that the housing market starts to crash. And the economy just, the first three months that we're over, overseas and really just focused on language acquisition at that time, all of us were talking like, you know what, this will this be great. We're going to learn a lot of new skills, work with a whole bunch of small communities, small organizations, um, learn how to, to do things that were very applicable when we get back to the States, do some good work. And this housing and economic crisis that everyone's having to face, it's going to be over in two years when we get back. Just in time for the recovery, right? So... Um, for me, I ended up spending two years doing really amazing work, feeling that every day was was worthwhile. You you had things that people were always asking for you to assist with, um, in in a way that you felt engaged and empowered. That has that was different than any job I had before that, you know. Um, and then when we come come back from that uh the economic recovery really had not started um for me at this point in my in, in my life and and my um personal battles with addiction and alcoholism there were two things that had happened here that were pretty prominent um i went from before i was in the peace corps and had not really been drinking much at all to towards the end of my time with the Peace Corps, um, I was drinking pretty consistently. In, 
in the Russian and, and Kazakh culture, it's very, very easy to get very inexpensive alcohol. And it's also very uh, common, especially in Russian culture, everyone does vodka, like shots of vodka. You'll sit down at, at uh, a lunch, it'll be a business lunch, but you'll finish the business agreement, like whatever sales deal you had with one or two bottles of vodka. Like that's just what you did. And Whoa. yeah, and, and my, thir my 30th birthday, I'm, I'm staying in this uh, really small town in northern part of Kazakh. It's not really a town, it's a village of like 500 people. Um, but I ended up going to a, a, a wedding the night before my birthday. My birthday was on a Sunday and we went on Saturday night. And it's about a 45 minute trip. You have to get basically an Uber that would take you. But I don't speak any Russian at the time. Um, I really, I'm just brand new at this village. I'm trying to be on my best behavior. And we go to this um, wedding, and I had been warned about weddings. And at the 20-plus tables that were set up for guests, every single table had a bottle of vodka, a bottle of cognac, and a bottle of wine at every single table. Whoa. And, in the, and in the back, there was a separate, like, I don't know, probably 4-foot by 10-foot table or two tables are put together and it is nothing but additional bottles, vodka, cognac, and wine. Now, this is my first wedding in Kazakh, super normal. That's what they do, okay? Now, <laughs> what I did not realize that they did and I didn't know how to control it was that every table that, the table you're seated at, there's usually eight to 10 people. And what happens is, one person will get up and we'll do a toast to the bride and groom. And they'll talk for five, six minutes. Hey, this is how I met the person. This is how amazing they are. This is the story of how I know them. And we want to salute their good times. Let's do a shot. Everybody does a shot. They sit down, the next person stands up. I, I mean, mm. there is no break, there's no rest. It just goes to the next person. And they do a shot. Next person does a shot. Next person does a shot. So very quickly in a 20 or 30 minute span, you've done five or six shots. By, Whoa. I remember that night by around 10.30, I had called other volunteers saying, hey, I think I'm a little bit of a, a situation here. I, I'm having to do shots all the time and I don't know how to say no. I really don't want to keep taking them. And uh, it's really fun and awesome that this is a great wedding. Have you all experienced one yet? And kind of at that at that moment at the evening, still kind of laughing about it. But I, I remember most of that evening, and I remember that they, as the American, they had me come up and do a toast in front of everybody in my best Cossack impressionation as I could do in, in, in the limited language I would speak. And I don't really remember much after that evening, after that point in the evening. But I'm still 45 minutes away 
in the literal freezing weather. I mean, it's like negative 40 degrees outside. Thick, thick snow. And next morning, amazingly, I wake up in my bed. In, uh, in this village that I'm staying at, and I am still fully dressed. Have my jacket on, my pants on, my shoes. I have one foot on the floor, and the rest I'm on the I'm on the bed. Have totally pissed myself completely, just soaked. <laughs> and it's as hungover as I could be. And it's probably seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning. And I have, and this is my thirtieth. That's the day of my birthday. So that's how I started 30 years old uh, of, of that morning. And I, I remember zero of how I got home. That evening, the family that I stayed with and, and the, uh, the woman that was hosting me and kind of like the business person, um, they all had a, a big like birthday party for me. And I mean, it's still three quarters through the day and I am still feeling super hungover really not wanting to drink or do much of any celebrating that evening. Um, but I, I go and I talk to this woman and she was like, I could see the embarrassment in her eyes. And she was like, uh, yesterday you, uh, you stand on your head. Uh, do not do this anymore. <laughs> um, you, you maybe should not drink so much. And I remember feeling ashamed and embarrassed and was trying to understand what she meant by I was standing on my head. Uh, what I eventually figured out was that at the time I did, uh, I was doing yoga before I went over there and I would do headstands and I was pretty good at headstands. And sometimes I would get a little, uh, have a, a beer to me. I'd be like, Hey, I can, I can legit do a headstand. So apparently at like, you know, 12 midnight, I try and do a headstand in the freezing cold. And uh, almost take out three or four people when I completely fall on my ass. But um, I, I, I put all of that out there because it, it again, I'm super blacked out. Legitimately, I'm in a completely foreign country. I have absolutely no idea how to even ask for how do I get home or tell somebody this is my home. And yeah. the weather outside is literally to the point where if I get stuck outside, you will die. You, you, this is not a maybe you freeze to death. This is you will freeze. You to will, death. yeah. Um, and and it was a, a a complete like no, dude. You you need to keep your act together. You're going to be here for another two years. You really don't want to have one of these issues again. And, and I wish that I could say I didn't have any more of those severely inebriated nights when I was in Kazakhstan, but I did. And there were probably four or five more of those. Hmm. Um, I, I say that not, not to be like, hey, a lot of Peace Corps volunteers get drunk and party and uh, right. they don't. Right. And I'm not it, judging it, you either because I've been there many times. Uh, yeah. You, you do and you don't. It's, it's just a completely separate thing. But... Um, when I, I got more acclimated to drinking more frequently and more often. And then when I came back in 2009, 
And I, I kind of came back and again, I couldn't find any jobs. Um, I, I very diligently was looking for about six months. And I mean, I, I sent out at the time, I mean, like, I made it a point, I wanted to send out 40 resumes a week. And I, I did that out of, at the time, I want to say 280 some resumes that I did. And I like, I specialized each cover letter to each specific job opening. I'm sitting out throughout the whole country, not just in the Orlando area. Out of those like 280, I'm not, no exaggeration, I got three responses. Three. Two of those were a no thank you. And one was a, can you follow up with an interview within a week? It was so demoralizing to, to one, have to be like, I, I am so jacked. I know what I can do. Like, I know the value I can bring. And yeah. excited, like, I'm ready to go. And I can't. Like, I, I can't get a job. Um, I, I can't get anything to get that traction going. And then to not hear anything back from anybody. It was almost worse than getting 75 rejection letters, you know? Yeah. Uh, at least if I got a rejection, they usually said, they usually said because of something, this is why we, we couldn't hire you. At least in, in, in the two that they sent back. That gave me a little bit, okay, well, next time do this differently. Um, very, very emotionally difficult for me. And I, all I did was start working on the bottle more and more. Man, that's tough. And, you know, it was, it was depressing because I didn't want to be in that situation. Right. And I thought that before I went to the Peace Corps or, or in my mind, I was like, okay, you have, you're not an alcoholic, dude. You, you just got a DUI. They messed up on this recommendation. You're really not an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. um you you've got this figured out you can go out and hang out and socialize in bars you can still have a few drinks you can still have fun that's so tough um, mm. when i came back from the peace corps morgan there was definitely a, a three or four month window where i was drinking a handle of vodka a day and i remember really very clearly going Oh shit, dude, you have a problem because I was rationing the amount of alcohol I had because I didn't have the money to go and get another one the next day. So it was like, if you want to drink tomorrow, you better not drink all the vodka today because you really don't have any more, any more money. And it, but yet over a two month period, I collect a bigger and bigger jar of, of handles of vodka, you know? Um, at some point, I, I get a job teaching again, and I'm I have recognized that, you know, you, you really, it's not healthy for you to have been drinking that much. You do not want to get to where you might be unable to control your drinking. I still felt like I could control it at that point. Um, after I get uh, this job teaching, I do that for it's at this time it's at a a public school it's in the Orange County system, and I eventually get a job um, and move to Pensacola, Florida, 
and the drinking capital. <laughs> it, you know, it uh, it really is a lot. Everybody drinks a lot everywhere. Um, but when you don't have a whole lot to do uh, and you're just trying to enjoy some things, there does tend to be a, a very excessive amount. Um, when I moved here, it it wasn't necessarily for a girl, but there was a girl I was dating that lived in Pensacola, and that's why Pensacola got put in my job search. Job search. And then when I finally do move here, that relationships was ended up being very toxic, and it wasn't good for my mental well being anyway. And then on top of that, the job that I got, it really was not as it was described. And I was left with very, very few responsibilities. Um, le legitimately, the only thing I absolutely had to do for the entire week was to start a, a teleconference at noon on Wednesday. That was the only actual, here's the what you were in charge of, everything else. Um, I wasn't ever given any like responsibilities. And there were a what whole bunch. Of, it was it was silly. Yeah, it was, it was uh, there was a lot of bickering between the person who was in charge of managing the facility in Pensacola and the headquarters that was located in Tampa. And the people in Tampa are the ones that actually hired me. The person that was in charge of the of the facility in Pensacola didn't want anybody at all, so she just didn't give me any responsibilities. And I was in a, I had my own office, my own room, but there, there were zero windows in it. And so when you shut the door, it was just you. There was nothing else. There's no seeing out, no nothing. And I, I wasn't engaged in uh, doing anything. I had been hired as the, as the education specialist. And I thought I was going to be working with community events, going to schools, uh, implementing a a more education of the blood banking system and how it worked with the community that could really spur and foster additional client relations. Mm -hmm. And none of this happened. Uh, and so I was like, all right, you know what? I can't keep doing this. I'm 32 years old, 33 years old. I've always wanted to own my own business. Um, when I came back from the Peace Corps in 2009, one of the things I, I did, I, I had two dogs and I, I, I walked dogs with this girl who had had a job at a lawn, lawn care company. And there was an older woman that owned that lawn care company. But at the time, one of their accounts or at one point uh, was managing the Orlando airport. And I, I lived pretty close to the airport, huge property, very, very beautiful landscaping. Um, but there were some things that stuck to me uh, about these conversations I had with her at the time. One was that the woman got into it so that she could be independent and free um, from a, a, her husband and a, a failed marriage they had. She was looking for some income. And at the time in 2009, I, I literally, I couldn't get a job waiting at any fast food restaurant, let alone what I would consider a career driven uh, position that, that paid anything. Um, I found teaching to be rewarding, but there's no money in it. Like, if you want to have a family and be the male lead authority uh, that was kind of 
ingrained in me in a, in a very conservative household, it, it, you weren't going to financially be able to do that as a teacher. Um, and so the idea of having like several different uh, accounts or different revenue streams, you know what, even if, if I've got 40 or 50 accounts, if half of them, because the economy goes crap, if half of them fire me, at least I still have some money coming in that I can pay some bills for or get food at, pay my rent. Uh, whereas if you only got one and they fire you and you get let go for a reason that's not your own, what are you going to do? Absolutely. Uh, and that, that idea really stuck to me that, hey, you know what? That's probably a job, you, uh, a company that you could be successful with. And so when things did not work out with this blood bank, I was like, you know what? If I'm going to ever do this, I should do it now. Um, if, if I really am horrible at being a business owner um, and I fail at this, at least I'm not going to be mid forties or fifties and at zero and going, you know, what do I do now? Mm -hmm. if I can try this and, and, and I fail at it for the next three or four years. At least I'll still have some time to, to make a change, do something else. But I felt very confident that a lot of the skill sets that I have and things that I'm good at, um, I wasn't going to be able to take advantage of that was working for somebody else or working in a different position. And so I started looking for a landscaping company that was for sale and I found one on Craigslist and I go and I meet the guy and it's a pretty, it's a pretty basic setup. He really, he had a few good accounts, but knowing what I know now, like I could have probably done better. Um, but as soon as I meet the guy, I immediately go, okay, if, if this guy who is not passionate about trying to grow this business and doesn't understand like what it takes to develop a small business and how to set some things up, uh, if, if a guy that has no understanding about that at all and isn't passionate, um, if he's able to be somewhat successful in this endeavor, I, I think I can do at least as well as him and probably better. Mm -hmm. And and I liked some of the numbers that were at the time and the most important thing, I could afford to buy it. Um, and by afford mean, mean, meant at the time, I could max out every single available uh, capital option I had and I would have enough to cover the, the upfront cost. I am so sorry. I don't know what's going on with my computer. I'm back. Okay. So you can max out every, yeah, I was, that was such an intense part of the story too. Sorry. <laughs> it it kind of was, it's, I, I, it, I took every single penny I could have at every, and it took everything I could get. Um, and I was able to buy this business. And so 
I do that. I give them a two weeks notice. And at the time I, I'm, I'm really literally, I just have this, a truck and a trailer with a mower, which at the time I, I, I didn't know it now, but I fully recognize it now. Very poor equipment. <laughs> I have basically bought a whole bunch of really old, not in good shape equipment, a truck that had its own issues and then good revenue sh streams for accounts. Um, but it was enough to get me started. Mm -hmm. And at, th at that time, there were w a few things additionally going on. I made the decision I was trying to, to do grad school and was trying to focus on some, uh, on doing um, global disaster management. I, I, I really still had this passion for my time in the Peace Corps. And I, I really wanted to get a master's degree and I, I wanted to do more global focused things. Um, and yet still stay with some, some business oriented themes. I tend to, ha I guess, want to wear multiple hats. Um, and when I had started that, I was working at the blood bank. And so when I transitioned into doing a, uh, this, this business on my own, um, I was, it was silly at the time. I say it was silly, but also great use of, of funds. But I was able to use some of my student loans to to really kind of help get the business going at first in to cover payroll mm. um, and to cover other upfront costs before any of the actual checks would start coming in. And um, once that, and you have to understand, Morgan, I didn't know anything about landscaping or lawn care. I hadn't, I hadn't cut any grass since I was probably 17 years old. Just like the, the teaching job, though. It's so, so funny. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just like that, I was like, okay, head first, feet first, and give every single thing you have, all of your money, everything. Um, cut every possible bridge to safety that you can. Because I love that. if you don't, if you do this, it will leave you with only one option. Succeed or lose everything. Fail. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, that, that really is what I did. Uh, and it, there were a lot of things that it helped to instill really good, um, cost focused behavior that has allowed me over the last 10 years to really scale my business up uh, very <laughs> considerably within Roughly eight years, I was I had 10x the revenue, um, been able to when I started with just one truck, I have now at this point six different trucks, seven, seven throughout the the time, and 13, 18 different mowers, and I've employed I don't know maybe seventy five different people. Um, some of that was not have happened if I was not so fiscally, um, conservative right when I started this business, there were a lot of things I, I just, now I really better understand how some of it fits together long-term and how to scale it so that, um, hopefully maybe I'm at a point where I'm 
able to just continue to do the things I enjoy and, and not have it feel like a job. Um, the, I, I never, when I first started out, I had fun with it. Every day was a, a new learning experience. Um, but most importantly was that right when I bought my business was when I finally, or, or very close to when I bought my business was when I finally made the decision to, to completely stop drinking. <laughs> it, it was it was a long time getting there. Um, bef before I bought in this, and I was still working at the blood bank. When I first moved to Pensacola, um, I, I moved in with a, a a woman who I now know, socially know and see her through Kaboom with kickball. Um, and she, she plays kickball every now and then. But when I first moved here for the first three months, I lived this, I roomed with this woman named Kendra and it was very difficult when I, to explain to her, try to have her understand the depression I was going with through mm -hmm. at the time. Um, when I moved here, there was this woman that was involved that I was dating and it, it, literally the weekend I moved here, it went south and mm -hmm. I didn't have any, all of the, what I would say for me were the normal, um, emotional, uh, ways to, to balance my emotions or to just kind of be chill and, and, and know, Hey, these are the spots I can go to and hang out with. These are the people I can call and go and see. Uh, these are the places in town that I, I know it's going to be stress-free. It'd be good to go to. I'm in a brand new city. I don't know anyone. And I have a job that is not engaging me in any way. So I have a ton of just free time sitting on my hands. I'm drinking at work. I'm literally I'm taking flasks into my work and keeping them in my, in my drawer so nobody can see. Very mm -hmm. much a functioning alcoholic. Um, but when I'm living with Kendra, I'm rooming with her, um, in the evenings, I would come home. I'd get home about six and I would stop at the local convenience store and it started with, I would pick up a six pack, uh, every single night. And eventually that six pack very quickly in about a, a month long span became a 12 pack. And when I would run out of beer at her place that I had bought that night, then I would go and find any alcohol that she had in the house. And I always thought, whatever I whatever I drink, I'm gonna I'm gonna re repair. I'll buy a new one, and I usually would. The next day, when I stop at the liquor store, I, whatever I drink not before of hers, I would usually buy to replenish. Um, and this continued to where I really was drinking because I was so depressed I couldn't sleep, and I was drinking more to just pass out, and really in a very, a very unhealthy way in, in a very consistently day in day out way. And that's when I first really felt, Oh shit, I can't, I can't control this. I, I have absolutely zero ability to say no. And there was a July 4th, 
Uh, I guess it would have been July 4th, 2011. And I, I'm, compl- I'm by myself. She's out with some friends. She had left the night before. July, was, that 4th of July was on a Saturday. She had, had gone, so I had the whole house to myself. And she was having friends over later that day at like 5 or 6 for a party. By 10 a.m. on that morning, I was completely passed out drunk on the floor. And I didn't wake up until they showed up around 1, 12.31. And they literally come into the house at noon, and I am 100% passed out on the floor. And it was that day really hit me as as being just, I don't want to live this way anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't want to be on a day of celebration completely blacked out drunk so early in the morning where the rest of the day, I'm just going to be hung over. I'll probably start drinking a little bit around seven or eight. So my hangover is somewhat decently hair of the dog. Um, and maybe I'll socialize with these people or not, but there definitely wasn't any good socializing that would ever occur with people. Um, Again, it was probably another year and a half, not quite a year and a half, another 12, 14, 15 months before I did stop and say, okay, you you have to stop. Um, during that time that I, I was living, when I had first got to, to Pensacola, I got my second DUI. And I had gone out with some, uh, a group of, of younger 30-year-olds, professionals, a, a group that I kind of wanted to socialize more with. And one of the guys had a, a party at his house. And when I left there, I, I didn't, like, I remember leaving and not thinking I was that intoxicated. Um, I thought I knew where I was going to get home. And I get pulled over uh, by a cop. At, at the time, I live basically, I towards the west side of Pensacola and this cop pulls me over at 2 30 in the morning and I'm doing like 110 miles an hour in uh pace thinking that I'm heading home uh and I am basically heading the almost exact opposite direction and I'm doing it at 110 miles an hour <laughs> uh, and there's a the, the, where he pulled me over, there's a, a building right by it. And every time I ever drive by it, I always am thinking, that was a rough night. Um, very, very much uh, helped at that point getting that DUI. I didn't know if I was going to get fired from my job because I didn't know how I would get to work. I didn't live close enough to my job at the time to be able to ride a bike or anything like that. Um, it may, it just made me feel worse about myself that I wasn't responsible. And that proceeded, you know, for that, that next year and that time that I was here in Pensacola, I mean, I was drinking as heavily as anyone possibly could. Um, When I went, I remember uh, 
St. Patrick's Day, and I go out to Pensacola Beach. And I, you know, drive out there maybe one in the afternoon. And I had a hundred percent intent of being back home by like six. I mean, like, I knew that's what I wanted to do. That was my plan. And about 7.30 at night, I'm so wasted, I can barely stand. And I end up driving home. I make it home safely, but it was a full realization I had lost complete power in every way of saying no to drinking. I couldn't do it. Um, when I did finally make the decision to quit drinking, uh, it, I didn't have anything outside of the DUI from a year and a half before. There wasn't any other negative repercussion that happened. I just said, I don't want to live this way anymore. And I made a call to my parents and said, Hey, I think I, I need to tell you something. And at that time I told them about the DUI that I had received here in Pensacola and the one I had gotten before in Oklahoma. At that point, I don't believe that they knew I had received or gotten a DUI at that point. Um, I could be wrong about that, but I, I don't believe I had told them before, but I just said, Hey, I, I know I have a problem and I, I want to stop. I want to do this and I'm going to start going to AA and I decided on AA because I had no idea where else to start. It wasn't like, Oh, Hey, I think this is going to fix everything. It was like, well, I remember the uh, counseling that I had to go through for these DUIs. And AA was part of it. Maybe I can get some additional information and maybe cross my fingers. It just works. I had my very last beer. It was the same Adams. I had it about 30 minutes before walking into my first AA class. And it was... I did not enjoy AA. That was just me. I only went for about, I'm going to say a total of six months. And there were probably definitely at most 20 to 25 uh, meetings that I went to. Um, for me, I, I personally found it just the meetings more depressing for me. Mm. There were people that had... Uh, been battling, and I mean really battling, 20 years, and we're still having to come back. Um, and, and to hear that didn't give me a, you know, there's somebody that, that knows the secret of, of how to say no. It was just, all right, I, 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 want, I definitely want to hear people's uh, story, and I, I can relate it to mine. And I can understand that difficulty, but I want to find somebody that's been successful. Absolutely. Uh, How did you do it? I want to feel like there is a way, like you can do this. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I, it, eventually that's why I, I, I think 
I just stopped going to AA. Um, I just felt like this isn't for me. Um, but I also feel uh, by the time I walked into AA, I, I just, for me, I just didn't want to do it anymore. Um, I, I didn't want any of the things that were associated with drinking. Even when I was drinking and, and buzzed and feeling good, it for me, I really knew, well, that might be for today, but you know, like you now know tomorrow, it might not be that way. And there's zero, you have zero control in doing that outside of just saying, I won't do any. Um, I, I, I knew for a fact for me, there's a saying in AA, and it's um, one is too many, and a thousand is not enough. That describes me to a T. It, one is too many because when I have the first one, it means I'm going to have the thousandth one. And that won't be enough. I'm going to want a thousand and one, a thousand and two, because if that feels good, then obviously 2,000 will feel even better. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so when I finally said, okay, Scott, you can't control this. You need to give up trying to control it. You need to recognize it controls you. Um, so if you, if you decide that you want to drink, you have to know it will always end uh, with some very negative repercussions for you. And being con like convincing myself and, and just knowing if I start this, this is why I want to start it because I want my life to be different. Um, when I walked into AA and I had that last drink, I can't say that I didn't think I was going to fail. I really, really did not want to fail. I wanted my, that personal change for no one else but me. Absolutely. <clears throat> You're tired of it. That's when it starts. Yeah. You know, and it, it took years, a decade or more of, of having just those negative things again and again, and, and just realizing, Hey, even on the good nights when like nothing necessarily bad happened, you still didn't feel good about yourself. You know, nothing bad happened to me on that July 4th. Nothing. I stayed at home the entire time. I absolutely did not feel good in any way, shape, or form. It, it was very saddening to me. And I wanted that change. So when I did have that last beer and I walked into AA, um, I just said, okay, make it one day. If you can make it a week, then you can probably make two weeks. And it, it slowly kept going. Um, I can tell you that you know, this is something that they don't talk about in, in AA or any of the therapy classes. No one discussed this aspect of stopping to drinking. But the people that you socialize with, they change. And where people were comfortable hanging out with you when you were both drinking, when you stop drinking, 
um, all of a sudden they become they generally seem to be very uncomfortable in that situation. Whether they think that they are doing something wrong because they might be tempting you or whether it is just not nearly as much fun to have five or six drinks by yourself and the other person hasn't had any. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and then I was so used to associating and meeting and socializing with people at bars or events where drinking was going to be very prevalent that the first year or so when I quit drinking, I, I really became a very, very strict homebody. I didn't trust myself enough to go to any of those facilities, even, even like a Mexican restaurant where they'd have a decent bar. I just, I didn't trust myself to go to that place and not have a margarita or not have a cerveza or go and meet up with friends to watch Sunday football because every one of them, wherever you go, they were going to be having a beer, two beers, shots, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. And so I just stopped hanging out with people. I became very antisocial in that regards um, until I trusted myself to go, okay, dude, you probably at this point, you can probably show up at McGuire's and order a hamburger and just get a hamburger and not feel like you're tempted to also order that beer. Um, or to go to Sunday brunch and watch football with your friends while all of them have uh, as many mimosas, bottomless mimosas as they want. Mm -hmm. it, it definitely took... Uh, a very long period of time before I would one trust myself to do that. And then once I did, and I would, and I would start to go to these places, it was still very socially awkward because I didn't know how to be myself without drinking. And I didn't know how to make other people comfortable if they were drinking and I wasn't. Right. Um, I didn't have a lot of, good or close friends in Pensacola at that point. So it wasn't like I had a wingman that I could just be like, Hey, yo dude, I'm not drinking tonight. You're not drinking tonight. We can go and meet whoever we want. Uh, in order to be social and meet new people, you know, I had to go to different events where it was like, there's going to be drinking here. You now trust yourself, but you need to make start figuring out how you get other people to be comfortable about that. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, for me, the, the biggest social thing is that I really made a, a concentrated effort and said, okay, this works for me perfect. I can meet friends. I, I can not feel as though I'm going to be awkward not drinking uh, was Kaboom with kickball. And you know, the, the business that I have, <laughs> I found the signs for it. It's kind of funny. We were cutting some medians and somebody had put a little, you know, one by two foot sign on it saying, uh, come unleash your inner sixth grader with kickball. And yep. it was, yeah, I'd been sober about a year and a half at that point, And I was like, you know what? 
Um, I can go out and, and I can burn off some energy and, and this will be fun. And I can probably meet a few people and we'll be running around so much. Not everybody's going to be drinking and I can leave at the end if I feel awkward or whatever. Everyone's drinking. Oh my God. Everyone's <laughs> drinking. The hardest core alcoholics you can completely imagine. As, and my first yes. season, I just sign up completely, just put me with whoever. And I get put on a team of um, all uh, high school, sorry, not high school, just all teachers. They're all from Escambia County teaching. I mean, by far the hardest core alcoholics I have associated with, with Kaboom. We had one of the guys, I'm not exaggerating. He made us all flasks. We got our printed names on it and he would brew his own, um, his own liquor that he would make and bring every week and everybody would have a flask. And so I had an amazing time with this group, just friends, all of us, um, no one else knew any of the other kickballers. And we just, we laughed all the time. We were not good at the game. Very, very bad. We always had fun. We would go out afterwards. It was just a very fun group of people. And I did all of that without drinking while they all drank their butts off. And so it, it was great. It was. And, and for me, it was really this like, hey, you know what? There is a way, there's an avenue for you to have fun and socialize and still kind of a little bit of the same people that you were and you don't drink. And once I became comfortable at that point to tell my story. It was, it's, it, it, Morgan, it's really hard to say the first time I'm an alcoholic. I mean, you're accepting it because mm -hmm. you know, when you say it and you admit it, you have to make changes. It means judgment. you have done and had so much fun with you're There's this fear that those good times will end. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you from my personal experience, it does not mean that the good times end. It just means that maybe the good times are slightly different. Um, it doesn't mean that they, they stop or that you can't have fun or that life can't be better or, or mm -hmm. it, it will be different. You won't have as nearly as many hangovers. You don't spend nearly as much money. <laughs> uh, there's not so many nights where you have no idea how you get home or the next day going, how in the world did I scrape myself so bad? Or mm -hmm. how did I, did I break my left three toes? Cause man, they hurt. <laughs> right. Um, there isn't better than waking up in. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think you probably know what I mean. Um, yep. I have definitely had many of those nights. So mm -hmm. seeing that that could change and I could still socialize and be myself. And then once I became more comfortable with that, with admitting to myself that, hey, you're an alcoholic and it's okay to speak those words. I'm mm -hmm. an alcoholic. That doesn't mean that there's something necessarily wrong with me. No, not at all. That person. It means I have admitted that something else has control over me. Mm -hmm. And so 
once I became comfortable saying that and I could speak it to my friends, no one, absolutely no one has an issue with me not drinking. No one. I love that. And quite the opposite, very protective of that. Um, that group, I'm still good friends with at least half of that group. And all of them know I haven't had a drink in a decade now. <laughs> and it was more like no one ever pressured me. No one ever was like, oh, how about just one time? It was, it was very much more like if they ever thought I was drinking, dude, what are you doing? And I'd be like, oh, no, it's just tonic water. I put a lime in it. I know it looks like a drink. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody's going to ask me what I'm drinking or feel weird if I give some random thing. That is soda. It'd be different. Um, and so that's why, you know, I'm doing it. Oh, okay. I got it. I got it. You know? Um, and for me, it was it has been a way for, for me to just become more comfortable in myself and going, I can do this. I can make it a day at a time. Um, I can make it eventually a year at a time. Hey, it's been two years. I can, I can tell you since I had that last beer, there have been four different times I've had alcohol in my mouth. Um, all four of those were, I was at, and one of them was at a wedding and I just literally grabbed the wrong drink. I didn't swallow any of it. I didn't drink it. Um, I don't say all those things to say, Hey, look at me, how great I am. No, no, he, but you're, it's part of the story. Yeah. Um, yes. it, it is one of those things that I'm proud to say that I have been able to quit drinking. Absolutely. I have not defeated being an alcoholic that, that doesn't go away. Um, I have a very, I, I recognize I have an addictive personality. There are other things that that energy and focus um, now gets focused into. Um, for me, I'm very fortunate that I had the, the business that I have. Mm -hmm. um, it fits with my personality in a lot of ways and really helped me in my recovery uh, stage. Um, I would be, I would get so depressed and have so much anxiety. Um, the anxiety would lead to the depression that I couldn't sleep at night. And so for a long time, especially when I got to Pensacola, like I just wanted to sleep. And if I drank enough, I would eventually black out and I could get some rest. What I transitioned to that when I, when I did stop drinking, uh, there were a few different factors. One, I quickly realized you can't do this work if you are drinking every day and showing up at seven in the morning, trying to lead anybody else and having to do physical labor in the hot, hot sun for the next 12 to 14 hours. You just you can't reach your goals. No, oh, no mm -mm. And that goal can be as simply as I want to make it to Sunday. Wasn't going to happen. Um, and so I think that's a, a big part of the correlation of why I really did make that decision to stop drinking and like really hit it home. 
somewhat close to when I started this business. Um, but it was also for me, you know, when I first started out, right now I, I almost exclusively do um, municipal contracts and industrial businesses. Mm -hmm. we, we might service or cut anywhere from 300 acres to 500 acres a week in, in some really busy seasons. Um, that's a lot of cutting and it's, it's having to be outside, um, day in and day out in a very consistent basis. If you want any type of organizational growth, there has to be a system in place that allows the, the entirety of the business to grow and not be dependent on specific people. Um, I can't manage that if I am trying to get over my hangover every day. And the other part of that was when you are physically outside working, I loved it because I could, as much energy as I had, as much of uh, emotional energy that my anxiety was, would create, I could burn it off physically. I could just work and work and work and work and work, start my day at 5 a.m., drive all the way to Dustin, work there and drive accounts all the way back and I don't get home until nine o'clock at night. And I'm so physically tired that when I lay down at my bed, I fall asleep. Absolutely. And so for me, I, I was, I have been very grateful that I had that work option. Um, had I been in a, a corporate position or a more structured area, and I didn't have that ability to really physically burn myself out mm -hmm. day after day, week after week, and year after year until I just was like, okay, I've, I've got this. On the not drinking part, I don't, I'm not convinced I would have succeeded. Um, I, I, maybe good chance because I was so emotionally committed when I made that decision but it also probably would not have been in a healthy way. I may have um, created other addictive addictions. Absolutely, you got so much free time and it's like, yes. what else can I get into? Completely. What else feels good? Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, uh, having having a, a, a job and a, and a business to where I can decide, all right, dude, if I just wanna burn myself out today, I can do that. And it makes me money while I do it. Um, it. It's not just spending the hours and passing the hours by. I can see a, a good financial reward. That inclined me to want to do it more and more. And eventually it just kind of became a really good work habit. I had a good work habit before, but when you start seeing more of that financial reward, you, you become more committed to it. Um, but it, it definitely played a very good aspect of being a, a healthy change for me when I did decide that, okay, you just can't drink anymore. Um, I will say that uh, it also hasn't changed. I, I still have a lot of anxieties. I really, I just can't deal with people for an extended period of time. Holy shit. shit if, <laughs> if it's like, hey, you have to... There's going to be an event, a social event on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. I am probably like, nope, 
you know what? I'll make the Thursday one and maybe I'll show up for an hour on Saturday. But I just can't take, uh, for whatever reason, the social anxieties that I get. Uh, and I've had them the, the majority of my life. It just it drains me so much. Mm-hmm. It It's not like a quick discharge of energy. It's really quick. Um, and so I, I do try and structure socially where I'm not fully engaged all the time. Um, and I say that because if, if I didn't do that and I was like, okay, you have to go and do this, you go to this, you do this. Um, I think I'm, mentally it can drain me where I might go, okay, how do I deal with some of that anxiety and stress? It'd be a hell of a lot easier and more fun if I had a few drinks. Um, so I try to just not do that. And I think that that pattern that I got into, I think it's more of a homebody when I really first quit drinking. Mm-hmm. I still do that. Like, I you enjoy it. It's your time. Yeah. I, I don't feel obligated to go out on Fridays, Saturdays, do anything. If I want to stay home and watch Netflix, that's what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I do things that I think will help keep me out of situations I may not want to be in. Um, when you do, when you are recovering and some people definitely have struggles. Um, I can tell you a, a guy that I met in my very first AA meeting, uh, he ended up rooming with me for a little while and we were great, good friends for four or five years. Uh, and he since moved to, to Louisville, I want to say like three years ago. Never overcame it. He continued. He would struggle. He'd go for about four or five months not drinking, and he'd get back on the bandwagon. He always, as long as I have known him, it was always, I can beat this. Here's the strategy that I will apply to beat this. And I don't think he ever said, this is something I can't beat. It's, it's something that will always have power over me. Um, everyone is different. I'm not saying that what works for me, cold turkey, will work for the next dude. Right. I think there's a much higher likelihood of success for someone when they make that decision completely on their own. Mm-hmm. I feel like if someone's trying to force you to make a change, you won't do it. You, you, you might do it for like three months, four months. Um, but you're not doing it for yourself, so you don't necessarily know what what are the right parameters for you. What have I lost? What it like? Yeah, you're always at rock bottom when it's like I have to change my situation because I'm miserable. Yeah, so that's you know, and it is. It's hard. Um, I I have several conversations with uh, different kaboomers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I won't say any names or anybody, but. People that know that I don't drink and they know I've been sober for a long time. Um, I have several people that have asked, how do I do it? Um, Everyone's different, you know, but I won't say that completely quitting works for everybody. Um, It is something that works for me. And I I don't, one, I try not to, to fantasize or to fetishize in any way, uh, consuming alcohol, like 
I don't reminisce and go, man, I'm, I really like an old-fashioned. And those are the absolute best. And they really are the best. Um, because if you do that, and I, my thought process, like, if I keep doing that enough, eventually I'm going to go, okay, let me just try a lot. Mm-hmm. Same thing with smoking. I used to smoke. And I I quit for five years. I started smoking again when I was on the Peace Corps. I came back. I'd go back and forth. If I was drinking, I really wanted a cigarette. And if I was smoking a cigarette, I really wanted a beer. It mm-hmm. it really feels like they, they went hand in hand. And Absolutely. I was always like, all right, well, if I quit smoking, I'll quit drinking. And if I quit drinking, I'll quit smoking. Quitting, quitting smoking was just as hard as quitting drinking. Mm-hmm. It's so easy to get cigarettes. It's so easy to get any alcohol. If you want just one, you can do it. But again, same thing. It was like, uh, if I have one... One cigarette. Um, the next day, I'm definitely going to want another. And in a really tough situation, when things really get hard, that's all I'm going to do mm-hmm. is turn back and say, I want a cigarette and a beer. You know? And the pack is just sitting there. Like, <laughs> oh, I just finished this pack. Just finished this pack. That's it. Right? And I'll be done. Or, you know what? Hey, I- I'm going to buy this new $7 pack. I'm only going to smoke one cigarette, and I'm going to toss the pack out. So I'll be financially feeling it enough that I just won't want to buy seven fifty for a cigarette. No, half the pack later. <coughs> right? Yes. Yes. So yeah. It, eventually with with quitting smoking, it was kind of the same way. I I really I woke up one day and I was I mean, I was absolutely hacking up along. I could feel my heart just pounding. I mean, pounding from drinking and smoking the night before. And I was just like, okay, just just go a day. Go one day without a cigarette. And so the next day, like, okay, just make two days. Yo, if you can make three days, come on, you can make six. You could do this. And eventually, by like month three or four, it was like, okay. Now I'm not going to have one because I don't want to go back to zero. It's really, really hard to get to four months. I really don't want to go back to zero. Um, I think I did that maybe a year or so before I quit drinking. And for me, it was definitely that if I do one day and I can do two days, I'd always be like, okay, just try and double it. Like if, like if you can make two weeks, hasn't been that bad. Like There was one day it was kind of rough, but you made it. You can probably make a month. Let's see it. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to challenge you, make a month. And then, you know, next thing you know, it's 10 years later. 10 years. Woo-hoo! I just want to tell you how proud I am of you for, for one, being so open to yeah. sharing your story because you know, I like, I know, I can't imagine how hard it is. I know for myself, it's you're vulnerable. And you, you worry about judgment, but at the same time, you realize that there are so many people going through it in the closet. Oh, absolutely. You know? And, and really, really struggling at it. Mm-hmm. It, is, um, it. It is very, very depressing and challenging to go, something has control over me that I will never be able to control. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes you very vulnerable. You, you feel that very much. That's why 
I think it's so difficult for so many people to even say the words alcoholic. It to admit that I that you have that problem. Um, it's one. It, it, that's the the very first step, and it's one of the most hardest. Mm-hmm. It's that that sense of vulnerability you feel because it's it is that realization that I I can't change any of this. Nothing I do will change that outcome. I'll still be an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really hard to get to at first. Lots of people struggle with it. I I noticed some. Although our, our stories are very, very different, I noticed a lot of similarities in your healing recovery process that I preach a lot about, like, um, you know, boundaries yeah. with yourself, putting, putting yourself first, not being selfish, but just really focusing on what are my needs, Yes, you know? And like, it, I heard that a lot throughout your story. Like, what do I need in this moment? Like, and then setting boundaries with yourself, like, where should I go? What do you yes. not do? One of the things that and I'm, I'm glad that you recognize that, um, the, when I was an, an aquatics auditor, one of the things that, um, in different lifeguard trainings, when you're working with 14, 15, 16 year olds, um, is recognizing that there are situations where you have to prioritize yourself in order to save or assist the other person. Um, if you get in a situation where someone's drowning, if it's an active drowning, they have zero understanding of what they are doing. It is 100% a survival skill. If you get up to that person and you're not conscious of protecting yourself, they will steal your flotation device and push you under and drown you. Oof. It is much better to just let them eventually pass out and then pull them to shore so that you stay safe. Mm-hmm. Um, you are injured. If they're flailing around and you're not ready for it, they hit you in the eye, break your nose, give you concussion, whatever it may be, then you can't help them. Um, because I was in that position and I taught that, that idea, especially when I was going through this recovery process was like, okay, I know some of these negative things will impact others, but I can't do anything to help them if I can't trust myself or if I don't know that I am safe in order to, to go, oh, these are things I need to do to, to, to keep other people out of those issues. Uh, you, you have to focus and keep that because it's your path that you're walking. Somebody else can tell you where to walk. They're not the ones that are taking the steps. And they're not even earlier in your career. They're not paying your bills, right? They're not in your relationship. No. You know, and it's so easy to get like, you, you even, you hit on expectations too, having expectations on what life should be like. And then you come out to the real world and you're like, fuck, like, uh, like who am no. I? What do I, I don't even know who I am. And it's okay. It's okay. You know, just follow your values. Um, Recognizing or accepting it's okay that life isn't going as you expected. Mm -hmm. That's okay. Um, I think everyone 
goes through those stages in their life. Um, I, I mean, clear as day. Remember a very traumatic evening. I, I am bawling my eyes out. I'm so depressed. I'm trying to, to drive my grandparents who one was in a wheelchair. The other one's old enough. He really can't be driving by himself from Atlanta to Texas to, to visit my parents. And we have stopped at this place in somewhere in Alabama, I forget, in Birmingham. And it's in the courtyard. I'm having this conversation with my mom. This relationship of, a, of this girl I dated right out of college when I first moved to Pensacola, I felt like the expectations are I was supposed to go to college so that I could have a good, good job and provide for a family. I'm supposed to be married some point and, and have kids and my parents are going to be grandparents and like this is how life has been told this is how it's supposed to be and it was this very realization that's not going to be for you that's, that's that's not how your life will be and there was no other path had ever been shown everything was just dark and there's this realization that I might want these things, like really want them, but I knew that they weren't compatible with some parts of my personality. They weren't, I was never gonna just feel comfortable in any of those roles. And I had no idea how to, how to like go about any of it. And just, I was completely broken down. Uh, and just going the path that I'm on, I'm on the wrong, I was like, mom, I'm on the wrong path. Like, I'm supposed to know this path that you and dad set for me. I was supposed to have eventually, like, I'm 23, 24. I should be talking about marriage. I should be talking about oh. doing my career, this new job I've gotten. And here I am. I have failed at everything. I've gotten this DUI. I have a job I don't really like. This relationship I had has absolutely gone south. I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know what I enjoy. That's it. Like, that's all I can do. And I'm so broken down. Uh, and that was, that was, man, that was a rough trip. Uh, it, it really was. But I think a lot of people go through those moments and have that trauma. You know, it, it when I had all, all of those things, Sorry. no, you're fine. For, for me, a lot of those events from, there was one thing. Sorry, there was one thing I didn't talk about at all that happened before I even moved to Pensacola. Uh, my dad got laid off from work. Very, very responsible. Like probably the best, I, I would easily say a very top employee. Never had any things go wrong. Always responsible. Him losing his job, that was one. Two, we did a visit my grandfather in the hospital. He's He's sick and having like an open heart issue. And we're having to decide if, um, if he passes, do, do we have them do something legally? I can't remember exactly what it was. While we're there, uh, we're spending like two days there. It's a, a Sunday morning. We're going to be leaving that day. And my dad and I go to get gas at a gas station real close to the hospital. And while we're there, I'm watching this guy come out of the store and then I hear this pop, pop, pop. 
and these guys come running by, a car pulls in, and then there's gunfire. There's more gunfire. They get in this car, and they take off. And this guy that I watched, like, I watched him come out of the store, get in this car, and this car drive off. He got shot right in the face, and he died. Like, literally dies in my arms. I'm holding him in his in the passenger seat. His girlfriend is just screaming, screaming. And, I mean, there's just rivers of blood that's coming out. He got shot right in the cheek. And the bullet came in and like shattered and it went a whole bunch of places. And we're, we're like five minutes from the hospital. And it, Oh my God. I'm like, uh, had, it was the summer I graduated college. It was a pretty, it's a pretty intense thing for anyone, I think. Um, and then that happens. And then very quickly after that, uh, is when I, I head to Orlando and nine 11 happens. That goes Holy on. Shit. Um, I'm having this issue with with a girlfriend. I'm living with her, but I'm, I'm we're really not. I'm, I can't find a job. Um, when I my grandfather dies, immediately after that, I have this DUI. Like three days after it, um, during the time that I've I've been offered this other job, trying to figure it out, and then I'm driving the whole time, never really processing any of these things. That happened over the past year, and it was like I just felt like it all got compacted. You don't know how, like no. it was so much. Bam, 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 bam. Um, and then when when that relationship that I was so emotionally dependent on to get through all of those times, when that finally got severed, and it was not, it was not the best ending by any means. Um, it was, it was very stressful and traumatic for me in that moment N not like i mean this guy died in my arms but besides that it wasn't like hey i'm out and you know my friends passed away or this explosion happened or whatever um but i know that it was enough to affect me very very severely and that that trauma like it i drank a lot to get through it um i didn't know any other way that's how I, it's kind of how I've done things for such a long time. Yes. And we're not taught how to cope with things like. Not at all. Right. Um, and everyone has their trauma. I, I don't care who they are. Every, everyone. Everyone has and their own. You, you can't compare. Shoes. Yeah. Oh, no. You can't compare your trauma because whatever you've been through that is the worst for you is literally so traumatic. So like it's. You know, uh... it is. Uh, and, and everyone does have their own thing. Everyone's battling yeah. their own demons. And what what is very traumatic for one person, it might be different for somebody else. Um, mm -hmm. It's how we react to those things. It's how it, in that moment, and uh, that time period, how it affects you, and the other aspects that you have going on with that. Um, <laughs> it's crazy. L life can be as amazing and vivid and bright. And I think that you have to, to keep a lot of those realizations in focus when it's not quite so bright, you know, and, and everyone's going to have ups and downs. You have valleys. It's, and I've been there where it's really, really dark. 
really dark. Um, I'm glad that mental health has become more acceptable to talk about. You know, I feel like when I was in, in grade school, I remember being in sixth or seventh grade and having my, my the first, what I would say would be a depressive episode. Um, and it was like, I have no idea what to say to anybody. I don't know how to describe it. I don't, I don't know how to articulate what I'm feeling, let alone what's really gonna make a change to make me feel better. Um, that's that's really hard. I just try to figure it out for everybody, you know. Until Google came out, and then I can Google all my symptoms, and I'm like, that's how what I have. And but it's like not being a hypochondriac, but like you are so honest with yourself, you know, that's it. Yo, that's yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And like you tell the people that care about you. I told my my mom, I remember I'm like, I think I have a borderline personality disorder. She's like, No, you don't. You're you're fine. I have so much wrong with me. <laughs> but you have people okay. that are like, No, you're fine. Which is it's totally okay to not be okay. It's totally Yeah. yeah. We Absolutely. We, we all think that um the other person has everything in control. Oh, hell no. We all, <laughs> I feel like most uh, adults are all on that right on the edge of going, oh, it could be an absolute total shit show disaster um, or a four star hotel. You know what? It's going to be one or the other. Stay right and on I that honestly, line. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to be honest. What I've seen going through trauma. Yeah. The thing that bothers me the most is being on the other side of it, accepting my problems and seeing people who are so unaware, the unawareness of, you know, the fact that they might have issues and they're not, they're so unaware that they're not willing to seek out help or try and fix it. And I'm, that bothers me a lot. You know, once you're through it, you can, it's easier to spot. Way easier. You know, um, part of on that, some of I've, I've had people approach me and have said, "Hey, I know that you don't drink. You know how 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 did you stop? Because I think I have a problem." And I and I, I try to be very specific with people and say, "This is what worked for me. It mm -hmm. it is not easy. It is absolutely not easy at all." But. I have seen so many people that just say, yes, I'm an alcoholic and that's why I can drink as much as I do because I can't stop. Mm -hmm. And it, that saddens me. I don't think there's any way to change that. Some people are, that's just how they want to be and say, well, because I have this problem, I can't control it. So why should I try it instead of saying, okay, I want to be a better person for myself. What are the things I need that I need to do for me that will help make those changes? Mm -hmm. I can't continue to just ignore or blame the disease on being able to continue to drink. Um, yeah, I'd hang out with people that, if, like if you're committed to wanting to stop, and if you're not wanting to stop, okay, then say, hey, I'm an alcoholic, but I still like to drink. Um, Absolutely. I've met so many people who are just like, they use the, it makes me feel like the, uh, the acceptance of it is 
is shallow for them. It's not like, okay, this is who I am. And so these are the, the things I am doing in my life to help cope with it. It's more like, well, this, this is the excuse I can now give to just continue drinking. Um, I kind of view it as the, my chiefs play on Sunday. I'm absolutely getting wasted if they win. And damn if they lose, if I'm not going to get totally wasted. Which which excuse are you going to use? You can say it's because they're celebrating, or you can say it's because they're losing. The only thing is, you know that you're going to get drunk. Um, it's when not I, when about I, the game. It's not about yeah. the game. Not about the game. And so I think a lot of people... I have I've seen a lot of people that I would really like. Um, I'm trying to think the right worded. It would I would feel better if I saw them going. I'm taking responsibility, and I'm trying to make some changes in my life, mm-hmm. as opposed to just saying, "Here's the excuse I'm going to use because I want to keep drinking." If that's the case, then don't you don't have to say that to anybody. You can just say, mm-hmm. "I'm going to go out on Friday. This is what I'm going to get shit faced." Um, it, it doesn't. If you have any of the negative repercussions, it doesn't stop it. Doesn't matter. <laughs> hey, I I got a DUI and I struck three people, uh, but it's okay. That's acceptable because I'm an alcoholic. No, you you still have to face those repercussions. Um, I wish it wasn't always that way, but it is, Mm -hmm. you know, and when you, when you do admit that you have a, an addiction, you, it's like saying that, um, it may not be my fault that I'm an alcoholic. It might be in the genes that I have. It may be the way I was raised. It could be the, the history I have, whatever. It might not be my fault, but I am responsible for that addiction. I'm the one that has to be responsible for the outcomes, whether it's my fault or not. I think that's a, as I, as I get, for me anyway, as I have gotten older, really fully recognizing that and going, yeah, I am responsible for it. I'm, I don't know if it's my fault that I am or not. Maybe, maybe not. Um, does that mean that I don't go out and socialize and, and have a good time? No. Um, I like to smoke weed. I smoke a lot of weed, actually. I find that um, it a lot of my anxieties, it very naturally helps with. Um, that's a, a benefit for me. I, I'm really very much a fan for a lot of the um, legal changes to medical marijuana to where you can really um, observe how much CBD is in it, um, what type it is, and tailor the the medication more for you. Do I like getting, getting high from weed? Absolutely, it feels great. Do I wanna do that every day? No. Do I prefer to have some of the benefits of the CBD and how it relaxes or milds my anxiety? 
so that I can sleep at night? Absolutely. I don't want to sit in my bed and just sit and think for three hours upon every little detail that I feel like I fucked up on during the day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, do, are there other medical substances that can be used? Yes. I think there's a responsible way to do it. Um, I think that for every person, it's probably a little bit different. Um, I remember during the opioid issues in like the early part of the decade, 2011, 2012, um, I want to say I was like 2014. I went to my dentist and I had a, I had an a, a single cavity and she gave me a 30 day prescription of opioids to help. Oh, build shit. Right. I had at that point been sober from alcohol for about a year and a half, two years. Mm -hmm. And I almost fucked up. I could see how I could have very easily slipped into being an opioid addict. I have it's not alcohol. It's not addiction. Alcohol. It's the period. addiction. Yeah. Uh, I had one of those opioids the first day. And the only reason, only reason I took it was because she's prescribed it to me. I didn't have, like, it wasn't really, the cavity wasn't really bothering me. It was going to get fixed within a month. I had one pill the first day, two pills the second day, three pills the third day. And I said, when I had the three pills, and, I, and it felt very similar to being drunk. Very, very similar. Um, oh, no. <laughs> the, yeah. The, the down part was much more severe. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily describe it as a hangover, but a bad hang ha headache. And I felt very dehydrated. Um, but I... I very quickly recognized that, yo, tomorrow it's going to be four or five pills. This is not a good thing. This, this is, is a bad idea. Yes. Yeah. I threw those pills out, um, like immediately. I was like, don't even, you can't get a prescription. You're not going to ask. Uh, and I think actually the next time I was at the dentist, I even said something to her about next time, don't prescribe any, any of these. I don't think it's so good for me. Um, but it, all of those things and you do hit up upon it, it's the addiction there, yeah. there is something that, um, every person is trying to overcome with whatever their addiction is, um, mm -hmm. whether it is a sense of anxiety, a sense of lack, lack of last loss of power sadness, depression, whatever it is, it's, we're trying to get that little dopamine rush. That addiction fixes. That's it. Yes. Uh, make it. And mm -hmm. whether you trade alcohol for gambling, alcohol for weed, Working alcohol out. for sports cars, for sex, whatever it might be, you, you really, everyone really does need to identify why am I really drinking? What, mm -hmm. what ch mental challenge or, or issue am I really trying to overcome with that? Because if I want to yes. really beat it, or I, I just want to make a change, mm -hmm. you first have to recognize why you're doing it. 
And if you, yes. most people never do. You know, I think a very, very large percentage of people never realize why they are addicted to something or, or That's what, what's missing inside them, right? Mm -hmm. You have to look in deep and you have to go, mm -hmm. this, this little sense of all I want to do is, is feel loved and cuddled and held and mm -hmm. I can't get that anywhere else. And so I turn to a bottle so I don't ever have to think about that. I don't have to embrace that challenge or just sit there with them or fuck, I'm going to go out and race cars at 500 miles an hour or however fast yeah. I can go and, and get that life or death thrill right on the edge mm -hmm. because then I'm, I, I can have that kind of get me through this sense of loneliness that I'm really feeling. Right? Yeah. That's what I will do. say like, yeah, addiction, like I don't, I think at the end of the day, it's something that you got to accept about yourself and whether you know, it's something healthy. Addiction is never going to be necessarily a, a great thing. And so I know a lot of people who turn to working out, but it's like they kill themselves at the gym and it is straight addiction, but it's, it's better than a more other healthy things. Right. 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 A more healthy addiction. Yeah. So just accepting that it's a part of you. And it's, it's have you have you ever heard of the grief recovery method? The grief recovery? It's called the uh -uh, grief. I know the stages, the grief five stages of grief, but I don't know. Um, I'm I'm by no means an expert. I don't know a lot about it. Um, I about two years ago, I was dating a woman that um, does the grief recovery method. And it, it exactly what it sounds like. It's ways in which you deal with grief and the associated trauma and how you, you can learn to sit with it and let it go. Um, there are definitely, there's specific stages and things that you do, but I think for a lot of people, it, in this case, that the, the grief recovery method is, is trying to help a person better understand why I have these emotions, where they're really coming from, um, what I'm trying, why I am so sad, or the the things in my life that are making me sad, what discovering and what those are, um, without fully realizing for someone what those things are that create that need for an addiction. Most people never, never get through it. Um, they, they never make that addiction better and they just switch it from one to another to another. Right. Right. And you know, if that's all we do and we keep, we keep making it, we survive. Hey, that is part of life. That's what we are doing. Right. You know, absolutely. We it's all, a part of you. All yeah. yeah. Well, I appreciate you for being on that's and talking about your story. You're extremely resilient. I'm extremely proud of you and I hope you you see the light, you know, in yourself of, you know, how every far day. you've come. That's awesome. I try every day. Um, for me, I really do my best not to take too much pride in it because I don't want to necessarily be prideful. I am happy that I have been able to be sober for 10 years. Absolutely. I will say that yes. my, my, I have just as many challenges, if not more, but my life is as good as it has ever been. Right. I love that. That's awesome.
Congratulations, too. I think so much. definitely. I'm but. really thankful for the opportunity to, to do this with you. I think that what you are doing is amazing. I really hope that you keep doing it and keep Thank having you. more and more people on. Thank you. It's when people realize that it's not mental, a mental health issue is not something to be ashamed of. Right. We all, we all <laughs> of us have that issue. I don't care. Right. I don't care who you are. I know. It might not be the same issue, but I know you have yours. I, have I, yours. I know. You know. I know you do. hundred percent. Yeah, I've I've spilled the beans on on this podcast so many times, but yeah, hundred percent. I, I mean, hopefully, yeah. We can see these really big, strong athletes that seem like they're really well focused, taken care of have every success going for them in life. Doesn't have to be an athlete, just very successful people. And you, you're like, this dude really has it. And I guarantee you sometime during the week, fucking in his closet, dark as can be, weeping his eyes out. Mm -hmm. Just no falling. What have I done wrong with my life? What will people um, think if they know? Like I'm a failure. 100%. You're not a failure. You're not a failure. Not a failure. <laughs> you're normal. Being an addict does not make you a failure. No, Having not a all. mental health issue does not make you a failure. No. Not in the slightest. No. You're very strong for being able to, to deal with it and, and recognizing there's a problem and yes. seeking out help. That is so yes. strong. But, all right. I think that's it for today. Thank you so much for being on. Absolutely. I'm so all glad right. to do this for you. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, I do have one more thing to add for anyone listening. Um, I am doing a fundraiser for my last podcast guest, Dylan Allen. I'm trying to raise money um, to buy him a amplifier for his drum. He's a street performer. He's legally blind. And his big goal is to raise 600 bucks to buy himself an amplifier so he can move to California and That's perform. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So Have dreams and go after them. Yes. So I'm raising money on my website, www.soulofawarrior.com. Um, all proceeds from today, November 2nd to December 20th are going to go to Dylan. So, all right. Thanks for listening. Take care.